As they are heading to the back, we are actually going to be looking at two texts this morning in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So you can turn with me or kind of put your finger in both spots. We're continuing our series this morning, Kingdom Sexuality. So we're continuing in that series. We we looked the last two weeks at at sexuality by design. We're going to be looking in the future at the the idea of singleness and what that looks like, how to understand the calling of a single person, even as a single person who longs to be married, what that looks like. We're also going to look at the ways Scripture informs our understanding of we how we can go awry and kind of off track in sexuality. This morning, though, we're looking at a follow-up to the first two messages that look at the, the call to practice God's good gift of sex within marriage. Alongside that, it's helpful and necessary to understand what does it look like when the marriage breaks down? And how do we understand that? How do we, how do we think biblically in a world that, that has strange ideas in regards to divorce and remarriage? What does it look like when that union, that, that one flesh union of a man and a woman coming together is broken? As beautiful as God's original design for marriage was, it's a sad state of affairs in the United States right now. We actually have the highest divorce rate in the entire world. I don't know if you were aware of that. We have the highest divorce rate in the world. Currently, half of every marriage in our country ends in divorce. The situation is made worse by this increasing practice of cohabitation. Kind of the idea being that if you live together before you get married, you have a better sense of if you should get married. When in reality, all the statistics show that those who live together before they get married are more likely to actually get divorced. Likewise, those who remarry after divorce are more likely to end up divorcing again. The culture of divorce has had tragic consequences on children. Generations now of kids who come from broken homes and and known the pain of what that looks like. It's emotionally devastating for children to go through a divorce. It doesn't matter how old they are. Whether they're four years old, 14, or 24. When mom and dad decide to end the marriage, it hurts children. The ground of stability and the assumed normalcy of life is forever shaken. Those things that kids just don't even think about gets drastically affected. Understandably, kids from broken marriages are often more likely to end up getting divorces themselves. What all that means is that today's subject is heartbreaking, and there's really no other way to put it. Divorce is a heartbreaking topic. And it's incredibly hard to speak on. It's hard to speak on, at the same time, it's also also very relevant. These statistics bear out, if these are true, 50% of marriages and all these different scenarios, every single person in this room, I have no doubt, has, has some sense of the nature of the consequences of divorce and remarriage. They have experience with it, either directly or, or knowing a loved, a loved one or a family member who's experienced it. We can all think of illustrations and examples. I can remember distinctly when my uncle got a divorce. It was one of those things that, like, before it happened, in my mind, it was just one of those things that just doesn't happen to our family. No one in our family had ever been divorced before. And we were young kids, and his oldest son was a year or two younger than me, and we were, we were close. And 
And we were a close family, and so we would get together for holidays. And, and I remember the awkwardness of his mom having to bring him over halfway through the Christmas celebration. And I remember, even as a young child, seeing the awkward exchanges between her and, and my uncle and, and my, my parents and aunts and uncles. I remember hearing the stories of how hard an adjustment he was having, living in a new town and with new kids. The way that he was teased and the difficulties. And, and, I, and I know now still just the ramifications of the difficulties of two Christmases and balancing, even with his own kids now, my cousin's children, trying to figure out how, how do they share time between the families and how do they do that and, and how hard it is for my uncle and our side of the family and the longing to have them there with us all the time. Divorce is hard and it's heartbreaking. There's really no other way to put it. It's hard to preach about divorce and remarriage because we know how personally painful it is. Some of us have parents who've gone through it. Some of us may have gone through it in the past. Many of you may face situations where it seems like it's on the table right now. Even when there's biblical warrant for a divorce, it leaves people raw. It leaves people hurt. Oftentimes second-guessing the decision as they experience all the relational fallout that happens. For those who've been unbiblically divorced or no loved ones who have, there can be that understandable defensiveness when it comes to this topic. We can often feel the teaching to soften the Bible's teachings on the subject. Divorce and remarriage is a hard topic. But it's also obviously important to address in our society. And the Word of God does address it. And so we're going to address the topic today. Specifically, we're going to look at two texts that show us what the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and Paul together, teach us about the topic of divorce and remarriage. So if you look with me first at Romans ni- uh, Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9, and then at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First, let me turn there. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And Pharisees came to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are not only two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses give give command, one to give a certificate of a divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Turn with me then to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. Paul's teaching on the subject. To the married, Paul says, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts. What I want to do this morning is walk through principles to guide us that we see from these texts. We're going to list several principles that I think give us a sense and and really dilute down the, the New Testament's teaching on divorce and remarriage. But I want to say from the start, these are principles to guide us. We have to be careful in the application of them. There is nothing so sticky or tangled as divorce and remarriage. Pastoral ethics classes, I can't imagine the percentage of questions that relate to this topic, the different scenarios that come up. These aren't nice, night and nice, tidy things you can kind of categorize and set aside. It's human hearts. It's one flesh unions being broken. There are all sorts of reasons, sometimes excuses, guilt. It's not easy to apply. And so one of the things we're going to see as we go on in this, I want these principles to guide us, to help us see what God's Word is teaching us in these regards, but also to recognize one of the things that we should see from these principles is the need to seek spiritual counsel before we ever go down the path of divorce or remarriage. Does that make sense? The first thing we see from our text this morning, that Matthew 19 text and the 1 Corinthians 7 text, is that marriage was meant to be permanent. It was meant to be a lifelong state. This is in keeping with the last two messages we had. Remember how we said whenever Jesus refers to marriage, where does he go? He goes to Genesis 1 and 2. In this context, Jesus knows the Pharisees are attempting to set a trap for him. The the context behind what's going on is that there's two schools of thought within Judaism in Jesus' day. There's two sort of schools. The Hillel school taught that divorce was permitted for adultery as well as any other cause or thing. That's the language you see in our text. Can you divorce a woman for any cause? In essence... It made it possible to have sort of a precursor to no-fault divorce. That's what we're reading about. That's the challenge we see in Matthew. On the other side of this is the Shammai school. And this school argued for a much more strict interpretation that divorce was permissible only when adultery had occurred. So you have people that kind of open the floodgates to divorce whenever a husband desires he wants to end it for any cause. And people who said divorce can only happen... The absolute only time is when a woman commits adultery. You notice that there's not an opportunity for a woman to divorce a man in the way they describe it. So so very lenient, very, very tight. Those are the two schools. And what they're doing is they're challenging Jesus. They're kind of calling him to step in the middle of this debate, knowing that kind of no matter how he answers, he's either going to make one side angry and the other happy or vice versa. So they're trying to trap him. He's around these multitude of crowds, he's, he's healing people in the verses immediately preceding this in one through two, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19. And so they're basically coming in in the middle of his ministry and trying to cause division. They assume it's a no-win situation. 
But Jesus rejects their assumptions from the start. He's pretty good at that. He begins by quoting Genesis 1 and 2, but rather than jump to when or whether there are legitimate grounds for divorce, he first argues that marriage is designed to be a permanent, lifelong union between one man and one woman. He doesn't allow divorce to set the agenda, right? That's not, that's not the game he's going to play. Instead, he argues that when God joins something together, men shouldn't obsess over how to separate it. When God joins it, our primary concern shouldn't be the right way to break it apart. It's a direct indictment of their attitudes. They're having all these debates over the right way to do divorce when they should be thinking about how do we preserve and promote marriages. Jesus won't be baited into telling them if there are biblical grounds for divorce without first underscoring that marriage is sacred. And his challenge hits home, right? You can see it from their response. There's almost this immediate sense of shame in that he's implying they don't value marriage highly enough. So so they kind of throw it back at him. Well, then why did Moses say? Right? Don't tell us about this one flesh union. Moses, are, are you disagreeing with Moses? kind of the second part of the trap. Why does Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? They try to pretend that they're only being obedient to God in granting these divorces. But Jesus evades the trap again. Divorce isn't what God intended for marriage. Moses gives the option of divorce in Deuteronomy. But Jesus clarifies it's a concession because of sin. If you want God's intention, Jesus says, don't look to Deuteronomy, don't look to Exodus, look to Genesis. That's God's intention. And that's so important. Jesus' first and main point about divorce isn't to tease out whether it's okay or not. He knows our hearts. He knows that some of the audience are no doubt at that very moment, maybe like some in the audience today, trying to decide if they can biblically get a divorce. Instead, his main point is that God didn't intend for marriages to end in divorce. In other words, Jesus says to start out with, don't get divorced. Hear me say that first. Uphold the sanctity of marriage. The second principle we see is that divorce is not always sinful, but it always arises from sin. Divorce is not always sinful, but it always arises from sin. Marriage is sacred. Divorce is not on the radar screen before the fall. There's no notion of Adam, if he had back pockets at that point in the garden, of thinking he's got kind of divorce as an option just in case things fall apart. There's no part of his heart that's even thinking that way. He's just rejoicing in the glory and the beauty and the preciousness of this one flesh union. We can draw another conclusion, though. Divorce is always the product of sin. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be harsh. If divorce happens... It happens because one spouse or both spouses are sinning and have chosen to break their marriage vows going forward 
or one of them has already broken the marriage vows. Does that make sense? That's what leads people to divorce. Jesus specifically tells them that divorce can happen. Divorce is possible. There are biblical, God-sanctioned grounds for divorce. So that also means it's possible that a marriage can be ended. It might seem strange in a culture where 50% of marriages end in divorce, but there's some that actually argue a marriage isn't just designed to be permanent, isn't just designed to be a lifelong union, it's actually impossible to break the union. It's, it's that level of covenant. That's kind of how their logic goes. It's this unbreakable covenant vow before God. You might get a divorce, but in God's eyes, you're still married. That's just not the case. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is careful not to make divorce easy, right? But he's also careful not to make divorce impossible. There are legitimate reasons to end a marriage. And we'll look at those in a moment. They're tragic reasons, but they're legitimate. A helpful example might be, imagine a family has a beautiful antique vase vase if you will is that the proper pronunciation maybe if you're british it's this this antique piece of pottery it's worth a fortune and they've got it in this special place in the home it's kind of protected by the way it's set around the other furniture and it's it's on a pedestal and they have it there there's special lighting on it so everyone can see just just how beautiful it is You don't want to see this beautiful piece of pottery broken. And so you take pains to ensure that it's protected. You take pains to ensure that its its beauty is enjoyed by everyone who comes into the room. Well, what if a toddler comes into the room and does what toddlers do? We just had a birthday party for our six-year-old case. We had a whole backyard of chaos where I don't think a single vase would have survived didn't help. They were Ninja Turtles and we made them nunchucks. Well, if the toddler walks into the room and does a toddler's thing and, and knocks over this beautiful piece of pottery and it falls to the floor and it shatters, what do you do? Better yet, what if someone comes into the room in a fit of rage, jealousy or vengeance, and picks it up, looks at the owner, glares him in the eye, and then throws it to the ground? What happens? You don't pretend it's not broken, right? You don't say, well, because this was beautiful and expensive and because this was never meant to be broken, it's impossible to be broken. You can't ignore the fact that it's lying in a hundred pieces on the floor. You can't refuse to recognize it's shattered. That's the same thing we have to recognize when it comes to marriage. It is possible to dissolve the union. Divorce is real. Some people will say they can't ever get remarried because in God's eyes, they've never stopped being married to the first spouse. But what Jesus says here is that divorce is possible. And divorce, according to the very definition of the word in Scripture, means that a marriage has been broken. It's it's come to an end. So Jesus doesn't make divorce easy. But he also doesn't make it impossible. And he recognizes that divorce itself is not always sinful. Even think of the story of Joseph, right? You have to realize in this time he's engaged to marry. And you would enter into a contract 
a binding covenant just in the betrothal period, in the engagement period. It's not as flippant as it is today. So what does the, the gospel say? He was going to divorce her quietly, even though they're just engaged. But there's this sense also that he's doing this quietly because he's a righteous man. He thinks that there's been adultery. She's pregnant. <laughs> she has to have committed adultery, right? Doesn't quite have a notion of the Holy Spirit yet. <laughs> so he's going to righteously, quietly divorce her. End the relationship. Next thing we see is that sexual immorality and abandonment make divorce permissible but not required. Permissible but not required. That's why Jesus also gives us the exception clause. Jesus recognizes divorce ends a marriage and sometimes divorce in and of itself isn't sinful. And so in verse 9 he says, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now we're going to say the last half of the verse for later. But for starters, we recognize marriage being sacred isn't the only thing Jesus has to say on the subject. If he did, there'd be no grounds ever for divorce. He rejects the position that says, let me just find a reason, husband. Whatever reason, you know, her, her cooking stinks. She, she's always burning the flatbread. <laughs> That's good enough. You can get a divorce. Find any reason. He rejects those grounds. But the other school held that if a woman committed adultery, and only for the cause of adultery could the divorce be ended, Jesus actually broadens it. He, he doesn't use the word for adultery. He uses the word porneia for sexual immorality. It's a term that refers to any sort of sexual deviancy. Any sort of sex or sexually immoral behavior outside of marriage. In God's eyes, it's not okay for marriages simply to end in divorce. That's not okay. With the exception that Jesus explicitly states in Matthew 19. The reason for this exception is obvious when we think about it. Sexual sin breaks the one flesh union. That's what sexual sin does. The man and woman become one flesh. They're joined together. But sexual sin is a breaking of this. It breaks the sanctity of the marriage bed. That's what's happening. And that's why Jesus makes room for it. Divorce can happen because the covenant has already been broken. But notice, Jesus doesn't command or demand divorce on the case of adultery. He merely allows for it. This is another adjustment to their thinking. They assumed, if adultery is committed, divorce must happen. If you are a righteous man, you will divorce her. She's a stain upon your righteousness. In the Old Testament, even in Jesus' day, the assumption is not only will you divorce her, but then she will be stoned. That's what's going to happen. That's the next step. The Pharisees would have moved immediately to file that divorce as soon as they caught the woman. You notice they don't even have a category for a woman divorcing a man. 
But Jesus doesn't demand for divorce. He allows for it. And you think back to the Old Testament, it's like Hosea, right? The prophet called by God to marry the harlot. Why? As a sign of God's steadfast love for a people who don't love him back. He's a living analogy for God's steadfast love to us, even as a people, while Israel is committing spiritual adultery. What God is saying in the prophet Hosea is, I didn't divorce you. You committed adultery. You broke the covenant. You broke the covenant countless times. But I've remained faithful. Jesus can imagine marriages emerging from the horror of sexual immorality intact. Because he's experienced with the Father what it is to reconcile a wayward people. We had a couple that I knew in Minnesota. Changed their names for the sake of anonymity. Jimmy and Bonnie, we'll call them. Jimmy and Bonnie, for all intents and purposes, seemed to have a good marriage. They seemed to be happy and, and friendly. They were easy to get along with. They had... They had four or five kids at the time. Kids were doing well. Everything seemed good on the outside. Jimmy was constantly talking about how work was just booming. He was having all this trouble just keeping up with it. He actually had this really sweet job where he would do like custom paint jobs for cars. So not even just like, I need my paint touched up. It's like, I need my hot rod to have just the sweetest flames ever on the side. Like he was the guy that's like freelancing with the, whatever you call it, the spray can. Imagine the horror and shock of his wife and his kids and his family, his best friends in their small group and the church when we found out it wasn't just that he was so busy at work. It's that he was pretending to be busy so he could have an affair. It was just devastating. It was devastating for her, for their kids, their best friends who had had marital difficulties and looked to them as an example were just shocked and sent his best friend as this guy who's like 6'5", 330 pounds, just enormous. And I remember the first Sunday seeing him and he was ready just to pound his buddy for what he had done. You would have thought from listening to the first counseling sessions and, and seeing just the devastation that she experienced, there's no way this marriage can be spared. But God was at work. They understood she wasn't commanded, although she was allowed. But through the grace of God, she found it in her heart to extend forgiveness. Through massive amounts of God's grace, he found it in his heart to repent and to turn and when we were in Minnesota this last summer on vacation, I got to interact with him. And they're doing well. And they're thriving. And God healed their marriage. You don't have to divorce when there's infidelity. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Paul adds his voice to the divorce discussion. In verse 10, he says he agrees with what Jesus has said. Namely, divorce isn't the ideal. If you're married, work to stay married. 
And though he doesn't quote it, it's reasonable to assume he agrees with the exception already given regarding sexual immorality. Then Paul adds a new category for biblical divorce. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to her, she should not divorce him. You get the sense of the high view of marriage. Even when there's a sense of being unequally yoked, remain married. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. We'll get back to that in a moment. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They're they're not bound, you could translate it. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? The situation in Corinth is the gospel has arrived on this crazy pagan city. And you know what happens when the gospel arrives? The gospel captures people's hearts. And people are getting saved. But sometimes it's not the husband and the wife together. So now you've got a wife who's saved and a husband who isn't and vice versa. What does that look like? How do you function in that way? There's also teaching out there from Paul and the, and the other apostles that if you're a believer, you shouldn't be unequally yoked. You shouldn't get married to an unbeliever. It's not appropriate for you to be joined together. So what does that mean? Sh- should these marriages now be dissolved where you've got a new convert and someone who's not a believer? It's a difficult situation. There's no doubt tension in these marriages. Christianity coming under the Lordship of Christ is a completely different and foreign way to live. You can imagine the unbelieving husband. Why is she spending all of her time with these Jesus freaks? Why do you want to give 10% of our hard-earned money away to this, this cult? They're not even an officially recognized religion. Why are you changing all of these, all of these things and, and getting such a highly developed sense of right and wrong? We never cared about this stuff before. You're such a prude now. For her, it's exceptionally hard not to be able to share with her spouse the one thing that most shapes her identity. The man she's meant to have the deepest levels of intimacy with doesn't share her most intimate commitment to the risen Christ. It's not easy being unequally yoked. This kind of situation creates hardship and it creates heartache. It's not what either of them signed up for. I think you can make a strong case these marriages sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, aren't quote-unquote happy as we would describe them. But notice what Paul does there. His point in this passage is, the purpose of your marriage isn't for your fulfillment. The purpose of being married isn't for your happiness. It's not for your self-fulfillment. The purpose of your marriage is that it would make you holy. And the reason you stay married wife to your unbelieving husband is that by your being married to him, you might sanctify him. He would see your godliness and get converted. This is not Paul pretending like it's not a hard situation. It's not Paul being insensitive. Oh, just suck it up. It's not that bad. 
That's not what Paul's saying at all. But he's recognizing there's something more significant at play. There's no, there's no category for biblical divorce just because well, it's not fun anymore. We're not best friends anymore. Her cooking stinks. It's just not bringing the level of happiness and, and fulfillment I was expecting it would bring. There's no category for that. In fact, Paul recognizes even when marriages are hard and the people aren't happy, there's still a God-glorifying way to walk out that marriage. We need to hear that in our culture. Marriage isn't fundamentally about happiness. It's about God's glory. Stay married to your husband so you might save him. It might not be a quick conversion. There may be no conversion. But it will honor God. And it will honor the sanctity of your marriage. Then in verse 15, we see Paul making his exception. If the spouse separates, the Christian spouse is free, not bound. Now, this isn't like separation like we think. If we hear a word like separated, what do we think? This is like the pre-divorce state, right? We're getting separated. That's not what the word means here in context. This idea of separation is language referring to abandonment or desertion. In other words, the unbelieving spouse has cut tail and run away. When that happens, Paul says, the other spouse is free. What he's saying is the other spouse can remarry with a clean conscience before God. Where sexual immorality breaks the one flesh union, abandonment and desertion breaks the leave and cleave requirements. Leave your father and mother and cleave to each other. Come together, form a new household. Desertion and abandonment breaks that. Now here's a hard question. I would add a caveat here. I'm not alone in this, but we need to tread carefully. What about cases of abuse? Is that grounds for divorce? I think it can be. And here's why. There's no passage that specifically enumerates this idea of abuse being grounds for divorce. But I think we can appropriately recognize there's room for it at times if carefully understood within what Paul is saying about abandonment. Imagine if a husband is beating his wife or kids. If we hear about that happening at Providence, the first thing that we're going to do as pastors is we're going to alert the authorities. We're going to tell the police about what's going on. We're going to get them involved. The second thing we're going to do, if it seems wise, is we're going to go to the judicial system and ask for an order for protection. Will you give us an order for protection to give to this woman, to give to these children, so that that man is not allowed to be in contact with them for the sake of their own safety? We don't want them to endure physical harm. We don't want them to be killed. Now, we had to do this in my previous church. It was... It was a hard process. It was a long process. It was an agonizing process. Now, I think we have to make room as much as our culture maybe doesn't want to that if there's repentance, that relationship can be healed. 
So I don't want to just jump to assume the point I'm going to make next. But if that man is not repentant, and we have to be so careful to make sure it is genuine repentance, given the vulnerable situation the woman and those children are in, if the man is not repentant, if he has a history of this type of behavior, that wife, that family's life, their safety will continue to be in danger. Our pastoral counsel would be, do not return to that home. Yes, you might be married to them, but for your physical safety, do not return to the home. Better yet, don't let him return to the home. You should have custody of the home. If the situation persisted and, and the guy was a purported believer, the, first, the next thing we would do is we would confront him with it. We would bring him through it. We would walk him through Matthew 18. We would pursue church discipline. If he didn't repent, that's where I think this now falls under the category of desertion. He might not have left. He might have a desire to return home. But his behavior is so heinous, it's actually impossible for that to happen. It's abandonment. His abuse has created the environment of a de facto desertion. His actions have severed the leave and cleave commitment of the marriage. We have to be incredibly careful in applying that. Incredibly slow to do it. But I think there's a place for that. I don't think we assume that the woman decides to go there. I think we walk that through pastorally. We pray and hope for repentance as long as, as she feels a willingness and an ability to do so. But we see there the permissible grounds for divorce. When sexual immorality happens, and when there's abandonment and desertion. The next category we see is that remarriage is permissible where divorce was permissible. Remarriage is obviously something that people who've been divorced or people with loved ones who've been divorced care about getting an answer for, right? Not just, can I get divorced? Can I be with someone again? Can I form a new family? It's assumed in Jesus' day, if the divorce is legitimate, then the remarriage is also an option. That's, the whole no, that's part of the question they're asking. If Jesus says divorce is legitimate in these circumstances, the assumption of everyone there is, if the divorce is legitimate, the contract for divorce that they would give someone, that contract implies you now have the contract, the reason you have the contract is so you can now go get remarried. That's what's going on in, in in the context of Matthew 19. Paul says the person who's biblically divorced is unbound. They're free to get remarried. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, so later in the same chapter, he says, a wife is bound, same language, to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. It's the same idea that's at play. Now, here's what's liberating about what Jesus and Paul teach. First of all, it's not just the man who has the freedom to divorce. Where there are biblical grounds, legitimate grounds, women can do so as well. And when they say they're free to be married, they're informing the Christian community 
you shouldn't view these people as damaged goods. That is hugely significant. Someone who has biblical grounds for divorce, it's not just the church coming along and saying, well, it kind of didn't work the first time. It's sort of okay that they ended it. I guess if there's nobody else left, you can marry them too. No, not at all. There's no sense of settling for someone who's been biblically divorced. They're free. They're unbound. Jesus and Paul are saying, it's okay, it's right, it's justifiable, it's good as a community. You should come around this. You should celebrate this marriage, celebrate this wedding as if you would. It's the 22-year-old sweethearts getting married for the first time. That's the view they have of it. That's what it is to recognize it. it's biblical grounds. It was permissible. As a body, we have to have that posture too. Because it's already a situation where people, even with biblical grounds, are struggling with massive amounts of guilt, right? Shame and, and second guessing. There's all this trauma involved with what's happened. When there is, is biblical ground sanctioned by the Word of God, it's our call to come around them and celebrate with them when they get to experience remarriage to God's glory. But Jesus also speaks to the other side of the issue. If someone gets divorced for unbiblical reasons, for reasons not including sexual immorality or desertion, they aren't free to remarry. They're not free. They're not unbound. In fact, what does Jesus say? If they do marry, they're actually committing adultery. If you divorce illegitimately, then your remarriage is also illegitimate. Now, this doesn't mean you're not really remarried. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus and Paul are saying. You are remarried. You have a real marriage. You've become one flesh with a new person. You, you've entered into a new covenant. But it means you shouldn't have gotten divorced in the first place. You should never have separated. You shouldn't have joined yourself to someone who wasn't your original spouse because you didn't have biblical grounds to do that. And that's why Jesus says that kind of remarriage is adultery. There was never anything that happened, even though you dissolved the first marriage, that broke the one flesh union and broke the leaving and cleaving. And because the sexual relationship of the new marriage results from sin, Jesus says it's adultery. This is part of Paul's point about a woman who gets divorced for unbiblical reasons in verse 11. But if she does, brackets, get divorced without an exception, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Implication being all the other stuff as well. But if he does, failing for good reasons, he should remain unmarried or seek reconciliation with his wife. Now, 
I am fully aware this can be hard to hear. It can be hard to hear just sort of in like the, the generic sense because we're so unaccustomed to this kind of thinking from our culture. But it's really, really hard to hear when you have loved ones who are walking through situations like this. It can seem harsh. It can seem like it's cruel or it's insensitive. But Jesus, hear this, Jesus is not unsympathetic. One reason this seems so difficult is we've been taught, we've been taught by society to assume that you have the right to divorce. That's what no-fault divorce is. That's the, that's the kind of idea that no-fault divorce produces. No-fault divorce means I don't have to list a reason for the divorce. I just go file the paperwork and I get a divorce. It doesn't matter if they agree to get divorced. I am filing for it. I'm getting it no matter what it is. A few generations ago, one of the reasons why we saw a much lower percentage of marriages end in divorce is simply because the temptation was much lower because there was no option of no-fault divorce. You couldn't go to the courthouse and do that. But now people are ingrained with a sense of the inalienable God-given right to divorce. The inalienable God-given right to remarry whoever they choose. But Jesus teaches we should think the opposite. That we should assume we don't have the right to divorce. Jesus teaches that most divorces are wrong. And the assumption is that most remarriages are wrong. We should assume that until we get spiritual counsel that confirms for us there's legitimate biblical grounds. There is a role for counsel and community in the process of divorce. There has to be. If for nothing else, then realizing the kind of trauma you're going to go through once that divorce is finalized. It's a horrible thing to walk through alone. And finally, I want to end with this. The gospel offers redemption and hope for everyone. Everyone who's experienced divorce. Whether they're a child of divorced parents. Whether they're people who have been biblically divorced and remarried. Whether they are people who have been unbiblically divorced and remain single. Whether they are people who were unbiblically divorced and then unbiblically remarried. The gospel offers Redemption. The gospel offers hope to everyone who's been associated with divorce and remarriage. Jesus isn't being harsh in Matthew 19. He's being remarkably compassionate. Look at how the passage starts out. Turn back there with me. Now Jesus had finished saying these things in Matthew 18. He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. He's kind of going to the fringes of Jewish society. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. He's in the middle of his compassionate healing ministry. He's not oblivious to what the Pharisees are doing. 
in the middle of these crowds, just, this is amazing. This man is healing people. He, he's taking away their sicknesses and their blindness and their lameness. He's raising the dead. They come and they try and destroy the work he's doing. It doesn't change the fact he's being compassionate. He's ministering in the midst of broken people. And the rest of his ministry reveals how sensitive he is to people's plight under sickness and under spiritual blindness and under sin. He hates sin, but he has incredible depths of compassion for the sinner caught up in sin. At the same time, that doesn't mean he won't speak truth to that sinner caught up in sin. Jesus knows He designed marriage with the Father. Jesus knows divorce is brutal. It's brutal because Jesus is the one who designed the nature of the intimacy that happens with the leaving and cleaving and the one flesh union. He knows the trauma that happens. It's emotional. It's legal. It's relational. It's spiritual. It's physical. It's familial. It's personal. There are consequences to divorce. Whatever people might tell you, just just get a divorce. It'll be easier. You'll be happier. There are real consequences and Jesus knows them. Counselors talk about the fact people who have been divorced often describe it like experiencing a death. It's like experiencing a death. Except it's one that leaves the divorced person feeling either like a helpless bystander or one guilty of negligent homicide. Jesus knows how difficult it is. He knows the consequences of sin. He knows how shallow and empty sin's promises really are. He's not being harsh. He's being protective. And He extends His care and His compassion to us. And here's the good news. He extends His care and compassion to us not just before we sin, but even after. Mary Magdalene, right? Most scholars agree she's, she's probably a prostitute. Jesus takes Mary and makes her part of the inner circle. Mary. The woman at the well. That kind of relates to our topic, doesn't it? You've actually been married five times. And the man you're living with now is not currently your husband. You've made a mockery of the sanctity of marriage. But I'm here to tell you, I offer you living water. I offer you restoration. There is grace and forgiveness to the repentant. There is redemption, healing, and wholeness. So if you're already divorced but not remarried, Jesus would encourage you. If you have biblical grounds, there is hope for a new marriage that God promises to bless. If you're divorced for bad reasons, God would encourage you to seek reconciliation with your former spouse. The gospel is big enough to reconcile sinful people to a holy God. It's also large enough to reconcile you to a person you once loved enough to marry them in the first place. If that's not possible, God would instruct you not to get remarried. And that's not because he's harsh, but because it's for your own good. 
And if you're wrongly divorced but already remarried, don't pursue another divorce. It's a real marriage. Don't break up another marriage. Instead, repent. Ask God for forgiveness. And then cling to the promise of redeeming grace. Mary Magdalene knew wholeness with Jesus. In spite of all the sinfulness and difficulty of her past. Jesus doesn't pretend the sin that produced the divorce is small. Or that the sin that produced the wrongful remarriage is insignificant. But he promises his blood washes us white as snow. Turn to God for mercy and you'll receive it. The story of the Bible is of God time and again taking sinful, rebellious, unfaithfully spiritual, adulterous people and reclaiming them. Redeeming them for His glory. He can do the same with you and with your marriage. Just bow your heads. Jesus, we want marriages at Providence to be the analogy they are meant to be, to represent you, Christ, and your love for the church. So we want to hold marriages in high esteem. We want to to help marriages be strong and healthy. Lord, we we don't want to be complicit in the idea of easy, no-consequence divorce. Lord, we want to stand under Your Word. And so when Your Word gives us guidelines and parameters, we want to live by them faithfully. And we also want to live by them wisely. So Lord, we ask for wisdom in helping us to navigate when marriages get difficult. Give us wisdom as Your people, as Your pastors, to navigate and understand how to discern when and if there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. And Father, we pray that this would be a place of healing. Lord, that people could come and in the name of Jesus experience the fullness of redemption. That there would be no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus, who've been washed and cleansed by His blood. That they wouldn't feel like second-class citizens, second-class members, but that they would have a sense that they are loved that we are pleased that they are here, that they are a spectacle of God's grace. God, we can only do that as your spirit fills us and as your word guides us. So we ask in the name of Jesus that you would do that this morning for the glory of your son. Amen.